Peter Cox at the University of Exeter in UK also works with forests. And as we showed last week, he uses maths to diagnose their state of health. He's also behind a scheme at Exeter and Australia to apply real change when the scientific evidence becomes apparent. And of course in ecosystems where you've got one level of the ecosystem relying on eating another level, you can get cascades very readily and you can get internally generated extinction events, if you like, that are unexpected in that sense because there might be some small perturbation in a part of the system that can cascade through. So where you've got what a mathematician would call non-linearity, where things can produce a disproportionate response to a small perturbation, there's a chance of abrupt change. And that's what the issue of tipping points is about, which is another thing that at Exeter we're very renowned for. And that is the idea that you can get abrupt changes like something tipping over. And mathematicians have been studying this for years as bifurcation theory. We've drawn them into the light and said this is also very relevant to climate change and dangerous climate change. And that really exciting thing of connecting mathematical rigor to a really critical problem for humanity is sort of what gets us out of bed in the morning, I think. That's where the scientific excitement is, is this idea that there's stuff that those guys know, they don't even realise how important it is sometimes. And there was stuff that we know that make their work meaningful in a way it wasn't before. So that connection just from one building to the other here is something I think we've got that's very special here. That's the secret of Exeter. I think so. I think interdisciplinarity, especially on specific topics where you go, wow, there's a big issue, connect these two things together, we can make progress. And that's what we're about, really. With universities, it's so difficult not to create silos. And so you're always trying to find ways to tunnel through walls or not have walls at all. We've recently reorganised into faculties. For a while, there won't be any walls, then they'll grow. We'll have to reorganise or create tunnels of various sorts. But that's the game. The way to get more than some of the parts is for allow us not to become parts, actually. It's for us to continue to remain connected and be fluid in the way we do it. One example, which I know personally very well, is a person in Scotland, Jeremy Leggett, who is doing various things with forestry, rewilding, and he's got a team from Oxford, including Natalie Seddon, who's Professor of Biodiversity, and a team of postdocs. And having that going on of change being monitored by academics at the same time, and that interplay, that feedback, is that happening much in Britain at the moment that you know of? It's beginning to happen. So where there are plans to rewild or grow new forests, We're now in a position where we can monitor it as we go through, and that's hugely valuable as a scientific experiment. It would be very difficult to justify cutting down a forest and regrowing it just to see how it works. But you can do this as a side effect in addition to feeding back to the management of the system. So it it is a huge opportunity. So these changes that are kind of brought on for other reasons, they also offer a scientific opportunity. Uh, We see it also with changes in air quality, which we're doing for good reasons, human health. They have an impact on the climate, tell us something about the climate sensitivity. There are all sorts of things that go on in the system that are helpful for understanding how it will respond to what we're doing to it in other ways. And how much do the authorities, let's say government, councils, take your advice and come and seek it out? More so. I mean, I think in the UK there's very much a a high profile to net zero attempts to get to net zero for organisations and regions and and the nation. The trick is to make sure that doesn't become greenwashing, of course, with all this, because it it is an accountancy process. How How do you prove that you've got to net zero? And so we have this 
increasing activity actually in forming businesses. The Green Future Solutions Hub, which is growing rapidly because businesses really want to make a difference. They need to make a difference for reasons of appearance, but also many of them actually genuinely want to make a difference. And so I do think some of the biggest and fastest changes will actually come from that sector. And then as often happens in democracies, it's almost like it enables government to do what it should be doing anyway. It sort of it requires bottom-up activity to legitimise the top-down policy. When I was younger, I used to think it was the other way around. You just needed a very brave leader, but actually that's just not possible in a democracy and to stay in power. So you need both going on at once. And I think that's happening. Never happens as fast as we like, but it is happening. Not as uh, the time of Thatcher calling you tree huggers or the moaning minis, she also said. Yeah, well, Thatcher's an interesting case because she set up the Hadley Centre as well, Climate Prediction and Research. So she was the first one because she was trained as a scientist, unlike almost any other politician ever. And I remember a friend of mine called Sir Crispin Cervantes Tickell, yes, yeah. who was a diplomat, yeah. went after a course lasting a year when he took time off from being a diplomat in America, getting briefed on global warming and the science at the time, went to see Thatcher and discussed it, and it worked. Yep. Well, Sir Crispin had a lot of respect for Thatcher. So did Jim Lovelock, actually, you know, the author of the Gaia Hypothesis and all those brilliant Gaia books. She was a divisive figure in all sorts of ways. I think the sceptic in me says that it lined up quite nicely with her wish to end the coal industry, was the environmental concerns, but I think she also got it. I mean, the money that went into climate research has stayed and she never removed at any point, so she kind of got it. Um, some of her colleagues did pay lip service to it and still do, and that's one of the problems is politicians, you know, they can often get away with appearing to do something. We've got in the UK where these really ambitious commitments to net zero, and yet the government has allowed new drilling licences for oil wells, and you think, oh, crikey, make your mind up, it's one or the other. <laughs> A final personal question. We're sitting just outside your office. Wonderful view, looking way over... It's not exactly a mountain range, but it's fairly lumpy. Yeah. How much are you involved and do you love the area around Devon? Oh, I love Devon. I moved down here with the meteorological office originally when I was working with them. And it was a huge boon for us with young children to come down here with the moorland and the coast. And it's stunning. So in some ways, when you're very lucky to be around that beautiful natural environment, it reminds you how important it is that we protect it. And sustain it and, and actually reinforce it some of these areas look wonderful but are not very biodiverse because of the way they've been managed in the past so there's things we can do to improve this but also just to reduce the rate at which in many locations environmental quality is declining and that can be done but we've got to be constantly on guard about things that go the other direction because there's interest that will take it the other way people want houses for example of course people want to grow businesses they want jobs they want economic growth these things are always in tension with environmental sustainability but we've got to keep working at it and in many cases we've got new businesses that are popping up now because they're associated with the environment environmental sustainability environmental issues and that's got to be a good thing thank you very much it's a pleasure professor peter cox director of the global systems institute at the university of exeter and he said following the uk prime minister's back off on emission targets and i quote at current rates of global CO2 emissions, we have about a decade before we'll pass 1.5 degrees C of global warming. Countries therefore urgently need to act on their net zero commitments. In the UK, we have been proud to be leading action on climate change since the time of Margaret Thatcher. This 
is a terrible time for the UK to back off from our commitments, sending mixed messages to business communities that desperately need clarity to enable investment and innovation in a low-carbon future. End of quote. Peter's colleague at Exeter is Tim Linton, whose efforts emphasise international connections, not least with Australia. Does it help to have a university like this and, in fact, a university like Queensland, because I know there are connections. (laughs) Queensland had something called the Global Change Institute, where you had information, evidence coming from the research, which was then, theoretically anyway, acted upon to change things via some connection between the academics and society. It didn't quite come off, but uh, do you have anything like that here? Well, funny you should ask, because I came here 12 years ago with the task to try and create such a thing. And so I founded something we call the Global Systems Institute. It's probably been running a good five or so years in public form now. And these things always take time. But yeah, we set out to be about creating transformative solutions, not just diagnosing the problem. And now we're in a good place where... We've got close engagement with policy, but also with, say, the financial sector, helping companies who hold enormous influence because of what they invest in to shift those investments, be they pension funds and the like. So, yeah, one has to build credibility and have something distinctive to offer. In our case, applied systems thinking for solutions. But people are crying out for that. So, yeah, I feel good about where we've got to and that I've finished my directorship and could hand it on to my friend Peter Cox and continue to be part of devoting even more of my time to trying to make constructive change happen. Yes, I've talked to Peter Cox and the vision is most impressive. But what do you think is the secret of getting the authorities who've got the power... Maybe you've got the influence, but they've got the power to put the two things together, to have them take this seriously. Generally, they want legacy and reputational things, as well as, if they're in business, financial things or in government to be seen to be spending the public purse well. So the secret is to obviously be able to align tackling the climate crisis with something that they can clearly see in their interests, frankly, for reputational reasons or otherwise. The good news is we're in a situation now where it hopefully begins to become abundantly clear to everybody that changing to a renewable energy-powered societies and all of the multiple ramifications of that is actually going to generate real growth or real economic jobs, opportunities, well-being, just as will improving our farming and food systems. So we told ourselves a lie for a long time that this was just going to cost us and cost the public purse to do anything about. I think that's nonsensical, but so luckily we can get, it's easier to get an alignment of actors, not denying that there aren't enormous vested interests in trying to maintain the status quo in Australia, in the UK, around the world. And they're not quiet, but they can be surprisingly subtle with the power that they wield, but my God, they still wield it. So the job of a scientist is to call that out and be an honest broker, I think. But, you know, we could discuss people like Andrew Forrest in Australia who... Twiggy! <laughs> is that what he's called? Well, I mean... Someone... But he actually took a marine science degree, a PhD. Yeah. Precisely. Got a lot of respect for a man as well who's been 
calling out the current Conservative government in the UK for backsliding on its wonderful Climate Change Act and our net zero targets and threatening to withdraw his investments from here. Thank you, Andrew, for doing that. That's exactly what we need to hear because he's sending out the same message I am, that a better future, the well-being and vitality and prosperity for us all exists in making the great transformation. There is no business as usual. If we try to carry on the current business as usual, we head into the climate crisis stroke apocalypse and none of us knows quite how the bad stuff's going to unfold. But we know enough to know it's not a pleasant place to go. Tim, final question really. How come Exeter in Devon is such a centre for this kind of action? (laughs) Uh, Well, I've often asked myself that question. I mean, we do have the Met Office, the Government UK Meteorological Office, with its Hadley Centre for Climate Prediction and Research, which has been world-leading for decades, together with a progressive university in a relatively small city where we make up a disproportionate sort of portion of the fantastical economic growth of this little city, which is not quite Chinese in standards, but has been consistently 7% year-on-year. So I feel like we've created our own little island of climate ecological innovation and reaping the benefits but at the same time it's a beautiful place to live those of us who work on the climate surprise surprise are probably people really sensitized to the outdoors like me who's a what we call a fell runner i'll spend as much time as i can like last night running around on dartmoor uk's first national park which is just down the road so yeah i think Exeter, Devon attracts the kind of people who, for fundamental reasons, care about other living things, care about the climate, care about a better future for everyone. And the rest of the country is looking at you with with approbation or enthusiasm or what? The UK, like all countries, is a diverse place, but the UK is absolutely full of grassroots green activism bubbling up left, right and centre. And I say that knowing that one or two nights a week I can be giving a talk online or in person to some town level green group or network so the change wants to happen in the people the citizens are kind of self-organizing and they're doing so in the case of the UK in a country with a climate change act that is extraordinary and we should be extraordinarily proud of and yeah we've got a bit of backsliding from our current government but I think the force of the, the people is strong enough actually that I hope they won't let that happen Everybody's in this boat of climate change together and we need to be pushing as fast as we can. And we might be a small nation, but we're helping, just like every nation is doing its particular thing, we're helping show the way forward. In the case of the UK with offshore wind energy pushing for 50 gigawatts by 2030, if not more, you should see that exponential growth curve of renewable power here is just breathtaking, just as in Australia it has been for people taking up solar panels, battery power and the rest of it. Tim Lenton is Professor of Climate Change and Earth System Science at Exeter. His colleague, Professor Ian Bateman, said this after the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's statement limiting climate action, and I quote, It used to be that governments sacrificed the environment on the altar of economic expediency. This government has gone one step further, announcing changes which not only pile environmental costs onto every person in the country, but also sacrifice the opportunities for economic growth, which net zero brings. Yet again, it will be go-ahead economies around the world which capture the gains from leading on net zero, while the UK undermines its economy with policy flip-flops and an aversion to reality. End of quote. 
Professor Bateman advises business and has strong links with Australia. So the fundamental problem that you have when you're making any decisions which impact upon either the economy or the environment, or typically both, is that what you're affecting is a system. It's a complex set of relationships. So if you push this big system balloon in one place, you will have an effect on that place. And if that's all that you're looking at, then you might think your policy is incredibly successful. Oh, absolutely wonderful. But what you aren't noticing is that somewhere else, other bits of the balloon are popping out. And they can pop out in some really quite negative ways. Such that if you don't take account of them, you can actually end up making things worse by your good intention but dreadfully small-focused policy. What we need, and it sounds so simple but unfortunately it's not what we've got, are decisions that are based on all of the consequences of those decisions, not just the bit that I happen to have decided I want to look at. <laughs> and unfortunately, that is the exception rather than the rule. Is that why on this campus at the University of Exeter, which has a global attitude, you've got something called a global institute, which looks at ways in which you can connect different parts of the world and the country yeah. together? Yeah, the, the Global Systems Institute is its full name. So what we're trying to do is to give decision makers the minimum set of information they need to make a good decision. Now you'd say, well, why the minimum? Well, actually, the minimum is much bigger than what they're using at the moment. At the moment, they're just looking at what they want to look at and nothing else. We're saying, look, actually, for an accurate decision, you have to look at the other effects that you're causing. If I can give you a, an example to illustrate it. So if you take conservation policy in this country, it's the same in Europe and it's increasingly the same in North America. So what happens there is that a piece of land currently under agriculture is typically put under something that is called nature-friendly farming, which is just a wonderful term. I mean, how on earth could anybody ever disagree with nature-friendly farming? Well, what this scheme actually does is it pays farmers, for example, to leave a margin around their field or maybe cut out one or two sprays every year. When you go back to that field and you look at it, you find, oh, there's a couple of extra crows here and oh look at that running through the grass there's a few extra rats wonderful biodiversity is increasing but there's two other effects that are happening away from that actual field one is you're having absolutely no effect on the species that really need help because they're the species that used to live in marshland in heathland in woodland and it doesn't frankly matter whether you spray your agricultural field three times or three dozen times they can't live in that area they need their habitats with their food webs so you're not helping the animals that are most at risk but one thing you are doing is that you're reducing the amount of food being produced from that field or from that policy area and that has an effect elsewhere what it means is that well what it doesn't mean is that people eat less 
they don't. So you're reducing the amount of food being produced, but the amount being eaten stays exactly the same. So where does that miraculous food come from? It comes from elsewhere. It comes often through imports, and it'll come from the cheapest areas around the world. Areas like Amazonia, Southeast Asia, places where actually all you've got to do is set light to a bit more forest, uproot a, a few more trees, and then you can produce more soya bean, more beef, whatever, and you can fill that gap. But what have you done? You have, in the UK, you've created a few extra rats, a few extra crows. Over there in Southeast Asia, you are destroying the habitat of the orangutan. Or in Amazonia, you're destroying the habitat of the giant anteater. This is the reality of what happens when you make decisions and only focus on the area you're looking at and not at that wider system and its effects. On the other hand, I'm a new minister. I don't have that much experience. And what I want to do is look after my patch. And the minute I start talking about Southeast Asia and various other things like that, people go glazed yeah. and they look in the other direction. How do you get that worldview, that global systems view, really to be taken seriously? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. So let me pause it a slightly different example. We do the same thing with regard to climate change as well. So, for example, we will plant a load of trees. Right. What on earth could be wrong with planting a load of trees? Well, it depends where you plant them. If you plant them in certain areas, very low agricultural productivity, you might actually be doing quite a good thing. But if you plant them in areas that, again, displace a lot of food, then again, what you're going to be doing is moving that food production overseas and having effects there. Let's suppose that results in more deforestation of the Amazon. So what have you actually done net? You've, for example, stored a tonne of carbon in the southeast of England. Hooray, good for you. But you have now resulted in the release of two tonnes of carbon in the Amazon. Now, Carbon doesn't care where it came from. It doesn't stay in Brazil. It's a perfectly mixing gas. Those two tonnes will affect the UK just as much as they'll affect the Amazon. That means that you are impacting, you're making things worse for UK citizens through your poorly informed decisions. I think people are now pretty much waking up to the fact that climate change is going to affect you wherever you are. So, for example, we've had a very, very strange summer here because basically Europe has raged it's burnt. And because of that, it's actually sucked cold air down into the UK. And you've ended up with a much colder and damper summer. And that's affected food production. You can't isolate yourself from these effects of global warming. It's what it says on the tin. It's global. And you saying, oh, well, I'm going to make my country look like it's storing more carbon, when actually you're releasing more carbon, is making things worse for people in your own constituencies. But you see, that's exactly the argument being used mm. by uh, conservative governments in Australia saying... Yes, we can cut the export of coal, yeah. but our coal is better than theirs, and if we don't export it, 
then we'll have rubbish coal being used instead in yeah. India and other parts of Asia. And so what we're really doing is maintaining our wealth to some extent because people have got to eat. And we've also got to continue because otherwise, as you imply, Professor, yeah. <laughs> you will have exporting really of the problem rather than solving the overall global one. Yeah, well, uh, I do want to say before I reply to this is that Australia is my second home. My daughter lives there. I absolutely love Australia. But that is hokey rubbish. I can't record the actual term that I would like to say for that. That's like saying, oh, right, here we've got a choice. We can do uh, something that's not polluting or something that is polluting or something that's really polluting. Why are you trying to defend the thing that's polluting just because there are even more polluting things out there? I mean, hey, why don't you compare it with open-top plutonium reactors? That would be even worse. You know, what a spurious comparison to make. My, my pollution isn't as bad as somebody else's pollution, so we should go ahead with it. I mean, really, that is absolutely ridiculous. And also, it's not even making sense for the Australian economy to be honest what is happening out in the real world is that countries like Denmark China even to some extent the USA are roaring ahead with renewables energy technology and we are going to get to a situation where people won't want Australian coal because it's too expensive why on earth would you buy coal at X when you can actually buy your own solar power keep it in your own country be completely isolated from whatever nastiness happens to happen in other countries and pay less money because that's the situation we're in we're already in a situation where what's called the marginal cost the cost of the next megawatt is cheaper if you're actually producing it by renewables in particular wind power but solar's getting there as well than if you're using fossil fuels i mean think about it coal it's big it's heavy you've got to move it to the other side of the world right we've already got wind here <laughs> we don't need you Carl to be quite <laughs> honest <laughs> my final question unites many of the things you've been talking about what is Quex? Quex, oh, uh, it's the institution that was set up between University of Queensland and University of Exeter. I was very fortunate to be in at the uh, start of it. What you've got there is two of the greatest universities in their uh, respective countries. Now, I'm sure your listeners will be very well aware of how wonderful the University of Queensland is. Most won't have heard of Exeter, and that's absolutely fair. But what you need to know about Exeter is that it is leading the field with regard to this collaboration across disciplines and we're actually by some measures actually the largest university in that particular interdisciplinary field and in particular what we've specialised in is bringing together the natural, physical and social science that you need to understand these problems but also to go the extra step to work with decision makers in business and government and what we call co-design 
decision support tools, systems that will tell you what the consequence of a different decision will actually be. And that's what decision makers need, because you can't expect someone who can tell you everything that you need to know about the Roman walls about around Exeter to then be able to understand the food and the biodiversity and the carbon and the water and the recreational consequences of changing land use. We as academics have to take that task on and we have to provide the tools that they need, not us saying, look at this fancy thing that we've produced. All you need to do is to study for five years and you'll know how to use it. (laughs) We've got to fit to them, not the other way around. Ian Bateman is Professor of Environmental Economics at the University of Exeter and Quex is the link between that great university and our own University of Queensland. A link the Queensland University Vice-Chancellor Professor Debbie Terry told me is very dear to them and produces great results with more pending. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.